Okay, welcome everyone. It's very unusual for LSE, but I'm going to start on time. Um, so, welcome to our panel on Art and Conflict, part of the LSE Festival New World Disorders, which has been exploring all week how social science can address urgent global issues. My name is Henry Radici, and I'll be introducing and chairing this panel on behalf of the Conflict Research Programme, an LSE-led programme funded by the UK Department for International Development to help understand and respond to the dynamics of some of today's most intractable conflicts, like places like Syria, Somalia, South Sudan, <coughs> Iraq or DRC. On that programme, we use a number of tools such as the idea that in some contexts, politics literally becomes a kind of political marketplace. We explore the ways in which identity politics are constructed and reconstructed through conflict and violence. And we search for the forms of resistance and civicness that emerge to challenge some of these pernicious dynamics. So an important part of this agenda is to think about innovative ways of opening up conversations in post-conflict settings to hopefully enable reconciliation. So this is where today's panel comes in, I think. It builds on another project, uh, also in which LSE is also participating, the AHRC-funded Art and Reconciliation, Conflict, Culture and Community, led by King's in collaboration with the University of the Arts, London and LSE. And today's panel draws primarily on that work, asking important questions about the meaning of reconciliation after mass atrocity and the role of arts and visual communication um, in response to conflicts and dealing with its consequences. Uh, as part of this, and I really urge you to check it out, you can find outside in the foyer the art installation Text Illuminations by Nella Milic, one of our panellists today, which I strongly encourage you to explore after the panel. It's the black box on the very far side of the foyer outside the Sheikh Zayed Theatre. But first I'm going to introduce the panellists who will each make a brief intervention before we open it up for discussion from the audience and um, hopefully a, a rich conversation between the panellists. So first we're going to hear from Denisa Kostovicheva, who's an Associate Professor in Global Politics at the European Institute and the Department of Government here at LSE. She'll introduce the project, the idea behind the installation and the role of art in addressing difficult questions in post-conflict settings. Then Ivor Sokolic will talk about the difficulties of defining reconciliation. He works with Denisa as a research officer at the European Institute working on the ERC-funded project, Justice, Interactions and Peacebuilding, from static to dynamic discourses across national, ethnic, gender and age groups. Next. Tom Pashais will talk about the method, quantitative text analysis, and show uh, what they did in terms of translating the method into art. He's a PhD candidate in the Department of Methodology, where he focuses on comparative politics and new approaches to quantitative text analysis. Finally, we will hear from Nella herself. Nella Milic is an artist and an academic, working in media and arts, a senior lecturer at the London College of Communication. She'll reflect on the creative process and on the collaboration itself. For those tweeting, our hashtags are hashtag New World Disorders and hashtag LSE Festival. Please put your phones on silence and please note that the event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available in due course as a podcast. So I'm going to hand over to Denisa, who's going to talk us through the um, basics of the project and outline some of the issues. Thank you. Thank you, Henry, for the introduction and uh, thank you to all of you for uh, coming to this uh, event, uh, where we'll explore ideas in, a, I think, uh, quite a pioneering and innovative ways, because 
Uh, as an LSE, we are the students of economics and political science, and we don't normally go into the sphere of arts. But uh, what we've done with this project, we've done exactly that. And I thought it was really wonderful that we uh, received uh, funding from Arts and Humanities Research Council, uh, which really recognized that we are trying, sort of plunging into the unknown and trying to do something different uh, when we connect political scientists and artists. So I'll just uh, talk to you a little bit on uh, what we've done and how our project and our installations that is just down the corridor kind of fits into that, uh, but also kind of how it talks to the reality of, uh, of post-conflict. So, um, so uh, basically, our collaboration is a part of, uh, of a larger project that looked at histories, discourses, and activities related to reconciliation. I would like, I mean, I would be happy to talk to you about any of these strands of the project, but what I would like to focus uh, on today is how did we connect uh, with, with arts? So um, when we think about the arts of post-conflict, I think uh, for me it is most interesting how arts can intervene with uh, what I could call, would call is a paradox of reconciliation. In other words, um, a post-conflict is a moment where, you know, guns fall silent, uh, there is a damage and destruction of conflict, not just physical, but mainly social, personal, and, and intimate, and we're in the process of kind of trying to repair relationship to repair societies, institutions uh, begins. But, um, and what is very important is that uh, kind of the, the paradoxical effect that time has on this process. You know, you would think that when the wounds of war are very fresh, the process of reconciliation is very difficult. But the paradox is, and this is what we've seen in a number of areas, and particularly in the Balkans where we've worked uh, as a, within the scope of this project, is that the more the time goes on, reconciliation is even harder. And the reason why it is harder is uh, because of uh, the entrenching of exclusive ethnic narratives. And as you kind of proceed, the, the conversation about the conflict becomes more and more and more difficult. And this is why kind of this is a very, given sort of the, 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 the you know, seriousness and the grimness of the topic, still it's kind of quite exciting uh, to, to research this because now we know, what the, we know what the problem is and we really have to push ourselves and to think how can you go uh, how can you overcome almost this blockage that there is to talk about uh, violence and to, to, to address the legacy uh, or the criminal legacy of uh, conflict? And this is where we kind of fit into this kind of new thinking in the literature, in, in the context of political science, international relations, uh, where it looks at trying to kind of find um, a kind of an inroad into the subject, into starting the conversation, into getting people 
uh, to come together across uh, ethnic lines and to engage with what happened. And there is research that you know, talks about art as an alternative site of reconciliation and, and peace building, uh, as an, an aesthetic, as a, as a different and a distinctive way of reconstructing uh, societies. And, uh, and this is just like a beginning, right? We are trying to rethink, okay, so if this is a possible role of art, how can art do it? Is it just like, for example, bringing artists from two different sides, from different groups? Uh, is it trying to reimagine peace, right? Uh, reimagine different future from, uh, that will be com completely sort of, uh, sort of maybe be in a dialogue with the past. It cannot be in the opposition to the past because the past doesn't go away. Well, there's a kind of a whole loads of questions that, you know, and this is another sort of really exciting thing about doing research that, you know, you maybe start trying to answer one question and really open up many more and kind of start uh, new avenues. So within this project, uh, we've had um, uh, an opportunity uh, to collaborate with artists, but also to commission uh, different uh, uh, artworks uh, from uh, artists, and as, as I mentioned, we worked uh, mainly within the scope of this project uh, in the Balkans. And I want to show you the examples of uh, two pieces of art, uh, kind of how they kind of address the question of the, of the past, and, uh, and then lead into, into our, uh, our installations. So, um, We've exhibit, exhibited these uh, pieces in, uh, in, in different uh, uh, sort of settings in different countries, including in, in, in Bosnia. We've had uh, also an exhibition across the road at King's, and a lot more information is available on uh, our website. Uh, but uh, uh, just uh, uh, if we can kind of footnote something that comes later on, this is the um, uh, Museum of History in Sarajevo, and there is, a, there, is a, there is a photograph here, and there is an exhibit here. So I'll just kind of park that for the moment because I'll, I'll, uh, it, it, it's coming. So first uh, piece of art that was produced uh, uh, by an artist uh, for our project is uh, called uh, multiple water rocket launcher. So just in the title of the, of, of the piece, you see that there is kind of, a, uh, you know, it, you know it plays, if I may say that, with very kind of a dangerous and, and poignant context. Um, Mladen Miljanovic uh, is an artist uh, who is based in uh, Banja Luka in Bosnia, and uh, he is also a professor at the Fine Arts Academy uh, in this city. And uh, his art uh, is basically is based on his experience of growing up during the Bosnian War, and even more so, uh, living in what he calls like a damaged country, country that still, uh, sort of, 20 years almost uh, after the start of the conflict, uh, uh, remains ethnically divided, uh, impoverished. Um, and uh, what he says basically uh, destroyed. Uh, and externally isolated. So, by uh, creating uh, uh, this uh, uh, sort of uh, installation or this piece of uh, piece of work, uh, Mladen uh, was playing with this idea of, of kind of seeing and understanding and how they could be kind of disconnected. 
And his whole idea kind of fits into what we can study as political scientists as signification of space and objects. So he took a rocket launcher, which is the symbol of death. Okay, and by playing with it, by, by, by turning it into a garden hose, right, he's kind of trying to re-signify this object and kind of change the way you see things. So where once you have a thing that sowed death, kind of you redo it, and then it kind of sows life. It begins to, uh, you know, kind of, you, you change the way you, you, you see things, and by doing that, you also... Uh, kind of begin to kind of think of what it may have done, right? So kind of start again, kind of that's his encroach and discussion into uh, the difficult uh, subjects. And uh, my colleagues who uh, had an exhibition at the History Museum of Sarajevo uh, had a quite a tricky uh, sort of task, not just to lift it onto the, uh, the, the, the museum's building, but as they did so, it was actually pointing at the American embassy there, so that was a bit of a, a, bit of a problem there. But also, for all of us who knew the war in Sarajevo, I mean, this is a very poignant uh, just uh, image to, 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 to digest because the death on the city was sown from the hills from rocket launchers like this. So it's kind of an, you know, within its kind of lived historical and social context, it is, it is very, very, uh, very poignant, right, to, to, to put it there. So that is uh, uh, Mladen uh, Miljanovic's work, and he has, a, if, you, if you Google him, there are other sort of exciting things um, uh, that he does. And again, it's all about kind of re ethnic, what he calls, there is lots in his work about ethnic re-socialization because, you know, uh, the conflict divides people, divides ethnicities, segregates groups, etc. So now I come back to another piece of work, and if you remember what I asked you to footnote uh, was the picture from the corner of, um, of the museum, of the museum hall, and uh, here is a picture uh, of a sweater uh, of a little boy called Nermin Dibovic. Uh, and here he is standing with his mom and his sister. Uh, and Nermin is one of 17, uh, 1,600 children uh, who were killed during the siege of Sarajevo during uh, Bosnian war. Um, and uh, he was killed uh, very close, some 100 meters uh, from the uh, museum, uh, history museum in Sarajevo, by, um, you know, the rocket launchers, the, you know, stuff like that that you've seen uh, uh, that Mladen uh, Miljatovic was, uh, was uh, dealing with. So in this picture, uh, the little boy actually wears this jumper uh, that was exhibited here. And uh, Paul Caldwell, who is a professor in fine arts at the University of the Arts London, um, who collaborated uh, with us on this project, went for the first time to Sarajevo in uh, January last year. Uh, he had a project, a very exciting project, again, that was part of what we've done, 
of uh, training and drawing and engaging uh, local artists. And uh, he saw this and he was profoundly moved by his saw and this uh, inspired him to create his own uh, art piece. And uh, this is the piece that he created. It's called Life uh, Measured, Seven Sweaters for Nermin Divovic. And it's a very, very moving and a pensive piece where, um, uh, that, that shows seven sweaters and, uh, uh, that were knitted uh, by a lady in Wales um, to whom he sent a picture of, uh, of, uh, of Nermin with his mom and his sister <coughs> wearing the jumper. And uh, it's almost like a, you know, like a bar, right? And it starts with the, you know, the sweater uh, age one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and it stops at eight, because there is no eight. So um, Paul movingly talks about this, and he talks about this is a pensive piece, right? This is a piece that spoke, speaks of the destruction of the war, of the killing, not, not just children, but in particular in this piece of children, but um, by speaking, by not asking, right? By just pointing to the void and, uh, you know, kind of encouraging the conversations, right? Uh, you know, cutting, you know, through all that kind of a rhetoric, right? Of, uh, that you have that is basically, you know, infested, if you like, with these ethnic views and denials, right? And gets, the, you know, people to kind of, you know, confront what happened in a very human, everyday, everyday way, okay? Um, so, um, and also this is kind of, uh, you know, when it comes to Paul's work, and again I would refer you to, to, to his work to look at other pieces that he's done um, in response to the memorialization of the conflict. So these are kind of just the two pieces, but this was a very exciting project that had also sort of sound installations or whatever. So there is a, there was a website at the end of, um, uh, uh, of, of my slides, and I, and I encourage you to, to have a look uh, what we've done. So within this project, we've also used uh, an opportunity to collaborate with an artist and uh, uh, we created uh, uh, together with Nella, uh, so, so she is the rather main creator, but I think our collaboration uh, uh, resulted in it, uh, is Text Illuminations, the art installations which is uh, down the hall, um, that um, basically translated our project that looks at, looked at how people discuss reconciliations. In other words, we fit into the, in political science, science uh, kind of terminology, if you like, into the discourses section uh, of the project, uh, where we applied quantitative text analysis of text mining to uh, a very large amount of data. We had about, um, sort of we took a sample of half a million, four million words of uh, data, of conversations that people had about war crimes, uh, which uh, comes up to eight books of war and peace, just to give you an idea. So you, know, you just couldn't read, so that's why we applied text mining. So, uh, and it was a team of the three of us working on this, 
So Ivor uh, will say a few words about reconciliation, why you should study reconciliation and why it's tricky to do that. Tom um, will tell us more about actually what is, it, what is quantitative text analysis and what do we gain by it. And Nella will talk more about the artistic process. So, and hopefully then we'll give you lots of ideas and then we can take it uh, further. I will keep this here, but at the end I'll just leave uh, this website on if you're interested to have a look at uh, what we've done and um, uh, what uh, we'll be doing in the next months, weeks and months. Okay. Great, thank you very much. So, that will do. I'll hand over to Uh Thank you. Um, and uh, as Denise already mentioned, uh, we, you know, studying post-conflict reconciliation is tricky, uh, definitely from the point of view of political scientists, but, but generally because analytically it's problematic. Uh, it's never been empirically established that societies must go through this process to properly recover from conflict. But even if it doesn't have any empirical basis, the question of whose visions of reconciliation should be acted upon is very much decided by politics and uh, the possession of resources, so very real factors. Um, and also the desire for reconciliation and this powerful grip it has on societies um, stems from these experiences of trauma, chaos, polarization, and violence. Uh, and the memory of these experiences often give reconciliation a lot of its power. Um, now, the concept itself is actually contested and has multiple meanings attached to it. Uh, it can be religious or political. So, for example, from a Christian perspective, it's reconciliation is between an individual and God. Uh, in politics, reconciliation suggests a compromise and a setting aside of past animosities. Uh, often, it's seen as another word for impunity. Uh, reconciliation can be thin or thick. Uh, so thin conceptions are quite minimalistic. Uh, potentially, they're more easily measurable. Uh, so th these are conceptions of reconciliation as simply the absence of violence in the management of disputes. Um, whereas thick conceptions of reconciliation emphasize acknowledgement, repentance, uh, forgiveness, and mercy. Uh, so, for example, reconciliation can then be seen as moving beyond coexistence and um, involving a number of elements, such as a shared vision, uh, the building of relationships, and uh, social, cultural, political, and economic transformation in societies. Uh, reconciliation can also be backwards or forwards-looking. Uh, so backwards-looking reconciliation is focused on finding ways of understanding each other and healing of a traumatic past and ensuring forgiveness, whereas forward-looking reconciliation is focused on the basis for social repair or reconstruction. So for example, here we see reconcilia reconciliation as involving building or rebuilding relationships uh, today that are not haunted by conflict uh, or the hatreds of yesterday. Um, it's also variously conceptualized as both a goal and a process. And if we see reconciliation as a goal, uh, the end point is the point at which relationships have been repaired or transformed. But that point is quite hard to identify and even harder to measure. So each case of reconciliation is actually highly unique uh, to both time and place. And yet we have this urge to universalize it, uh, to universalize the concept and the experience of reconciliation. And the result is that the most common conceptualizations um, are quite normative. So they're based on this expectation that there's an explicit and express engagement with the past, which is required uh, for societies, groups, and individuals to reconcile with each other. 
only by knowing the truth about the past can reconciliation take place. And this suggests a compromise or setting aside of past hatreds. Um, we therefore evaluate the reconciliation in terms of how the past is dealt with in the public sphere, uh, whether relationships between formerly opposed sides are based on the present rather than the past, or whether there is one version of the past or many. And global examples, including uh, in the Balkans and in the former Yugoslavia, are emblematic of this. Um, but in many, if not most, the legacy of inter-ethnic conflict remains pervasive, and attempts, to recon uh, attempts at reconciliation are mistrusted, if not wholly rejected. Um, international actors are often quick uh, to criticize stalled reconciliation in these locations, uh, thereby feeding nationalist critiques of these projects. Uh, so what can we say about reconciliation with some certainty, then? Well, first, we know that we do not really know what success entails. This is something we're quite sure of. Um, second, there's a distinction between individual and national reconciliation, and the two do not necessarily go hand in hand, and often attempts to reconcile uh, different groups uh, actually end up antagonizing them further. And third, there's no single path to reconciliation. It's both a long-term and an open-ended process. And this is what led us to this question of how can we actually study it empirically, which is where Tom comes in. <laughs> uh, thank you very much, Ivar. Um, I think, for me, personally, it was a very exciting opportunity, this project. Uh, based at the Department of Methodology, naturally, a lot of my work is technical, and it's very infrequent uh, that people from our department engage in sort of production of artistic forms. So there, there were two uh, key things that um, I wanted to uh, this, pro like this project uh, to contain. One of them was to make research more accessible. So a, a lot of today's uh, quantitative political science is extremely technical, and you want to convey ideas behind the methods, in particular behind the methods to a broader audience. So, and at the same time, not to uh, constrain ourselves to visualizations, to visualizations that we typically see accompanying exactly the same quantitative political science pieces. We do have, uh, I, I can reassure you in the in the actual paper, we do have nice and neat visualizations. But what is important here uh, was to actually produce a piece of art uh, that does not just simply map you know, data points uh, to a certain uh, sort of typology, typology on, on a map. It was important to produce a piece that can actually engage with the audience uh, and ask as well as answer questions. Um, we had this initial discussion uh, with Nala a lot about what actually should be produced, and I think one of those takeaways was this it should not be purely visualization. It, it should be something broader. It should speak to a broader audience. Um, going back to the quantitative text analysis, I think it was very important that this uh, conveys methods as much as it conveys the results. Um, and I think in in the piece that you actually can see uh, exhibited outside, uh, I think it actually shows like this approach of treating uh, text as data, which is quintessential from uh, many scholars working in this direction. So, and one uh, often 
often cited, uh, I think, critique of these approaches, but why don't you actually read the text, right? Uh, we, do read, we did read the text, we do read the text, but oftentimes uh, it is impossible uh, just by sheer nature uh, of like, the sheer volume of the text that we analyze to read them all, uh, to deeply engage with a lot of this data. So uh, we do gain uh, insights. Uh, we did some manual coding as well um, as text, so uh, what Denisa referred as text mining. Uh, and the, the challenge here, uh, as opposed to, uh, for those of you who might be familiar with quantitative text analysis, a lot of those methods were developed you know, for English uh, language, for German language, for very, uh, you know, very European, uh, like Western European centered uh, languages. Uh, and one of the challenges, and I think it was both the challenge and the opportunity, was to apply those methods developed to regional, uh, to regional and a number of regional languages, actually. So here we were dealing with seven different languages uh, which were translated into Serbian. And even then, when it's translated into Serbian, it's not exactly that you see many uh, text analysis tools or even generally uh, approaches uh, to dealing with the, uh, with the particularities, with the linguistic particularities of Serbian, for example. So that was a very uh, interesting and um, novel part of the project. I think overall, um, the, the Nala will, will talk more um, about sort of the, the process uh, that led uh, to this outcome, but I think uh, it, does, it does contain uh, the methods uh, at, and, and in its core. So uh, hopefully, hopefully you can see that when you actually look at the, at the object, uh, at our text illuminations, uh, text analysis behind it. Thank you. Great, thank you very much. Finally, let's turn to Nella to give her insights. Okay. Um, I'm not going to have some kind of uh, incredibly scientific uh, insight into any of this. It's going to be much different because I come from a different discipline. Uh, and for that reason, uh, I maybe need to start with it. So I am memory studies scholar, but uh, I'm a co-chair of um, Art and Memory Working Group that is part of Memory Studies Association. So I work very closely with historians, political scientists, and often geographers. Um, uh, we found commonalities because there is something about the treatment of space that we are uh, interested uh, in together. Uh, my practice uh, has been about 20 years uh, long. And I have dealt with something that we call uh, participatory arts, but you might uh, find it uh, as uh, socially engaged or socially conscious arts, uh, co-design or co-making, community arts it used to be called in the 70s, but now it's kind of a pejorative term because it assumes that the product, the outcome, the artwork that gets produced cannot circulate the art market uh, unless it is called something like participatory arts, which is a bit more embracing, right? So um, to start with, I am and still incredibly impressed by the respect that the team has for their own institution 
the rigor with which uh, they approached this particular research uh, uh, topic. And I have already found that uh, when I was reading some of Denise's uh, research outputs, um, that were uh, very impressive in terms of how they're structured, the didactic kind of side of it, because in arts we have the liberty to do things very differently and in that sense confuse people as much as we like. <laughs> Uh, and it doesn't seem to be uh, the case uh, uh, with the team that I worked. Um, they uh, like uh, precision. And in that sense, I found myself being more of a designer than the artist in this process. I am both. I am in the School of Design in London College of Communication. And the college used to be called London College of Printing because it has uh, an incredibly uh, uh, large history, uh, especially in uh, relation to the mixture of uh, text and uh, image. So it's the university that has uh, had some uh, Beatles covers made there and um, um, for, for the records. And it has been well known um, through uh, um, a tradition of bookmaking as well as newspapers, but at the time when graphic designers need to work together with journalists in a kind of very physical way. So um, we are kind of um, cherishing our analog heritage. Um, and in that sense, uh, it, this artwork was uh, through what you see in terms of its aesthetics very much in the tradition of uh, the school that I came from because I felt that the team really comes with the angle that LSE uh, politics department, governance department uh, has um, and so I'm bringing in the tradition of my own house. Um, but the art form that I have engaged with, uh, which is the installation here, is uh, still not necessarily mainstream. I mean, it became quite popular in the 90s with uh, YBAs, which is um, uh, Young British Arts, so uh, from Tracy Emin to Damien Hurst, people who kind of provided objects in the space that are not sculptures, but actually things that kind of speak together. So um, you are now quite in tune with what installation might be. Uh, modern audience kind of expects this even. Uh, so um, I have created this to correspond with uh, the research that uh, has been conducted uh, currently. Uh, so I pushed the tradition of the London College of Communication into the uh, uh, installation uh, frame. Um, the reason for it is that um, I enjoy it very much as a form, um, but it also provide me, uh, provided me with um, a response to um, the research that uh, has been conducted in the way that I feel I can control, because the black box um, gives me an opportunity to create a piece within it that then has a kind of frame that uh, also um, uh, works with a field of vision that I can then manipulate. So um, this is not also new. Uh, I am a, a trained uh, filmmaker, and this is what what is normally happening with the moving moving image. But in this case, it was really interesting to um, 
use something that I have already done in the project called Balkanizing Taxonomy, and you can check it out online, when I have also used uh, black boxes in order to um, um, control the audience's uh, um, uh, uh, gaze within uh, the frame that artwork has been situated in. Um, I use similar method in this uh, work, uh, but um, I am quickly realizing that uh, the form of the black box when you're writing about or, or doing the work about the reconciliation, or if you are doing it within the discourse of the Balkans, it's, it's so overwhelmingly associated with the coffins that sometimes the work within kind of loses because the, the narrative around uh, um, uh, the work's um, um, frame is so strong that it's difficult to ignore. So with this work, it was very important for me that you step in, which means that you interact with uh, the letters, that you kind of bridge that gate between the understanding of the Balkans through that one object that seems to have identified it, which is the coffin itself, and you step into the coffin and start doing things that are joyous and very different than um, how we would imagine that you would interact uh, with uh, something that comes as an art piece from the Balkans. Um, another reason for it is because scientists would do what audiences all over the world do, and it is to kind of step away from the artwork and admiring, uh, admire it from afar. But the idea with this is that you engage with reconciliation as a discourse um, and effectively um, uh, encounter it by uh, not only touching the letters but having the opportunity to change them. So if you want to uh, make some swear words out of the strings that I create, I'm absolutely happy with that. Uh, as long as you do something to it, um, because that's what it's meant for. Great. Thank you very much. Well, I'm going to open it up for questions. Um, I have lots of moments. Perhaps I can interject some of them. So I'll take a, in perhaps a couple at a time. Uh, please wait for the microphone. Introduce yourself and please keep your questions brief and to the point. So, uh, perhaps the woman there in the LSE lanyard. <laughs> Hello, uh, my name is Frances Pinter. I have a question which I, I'm not sure you would have given some thought to yet, but which perhaps might lead to another research grant application. Okay, you um, can and that is your study and your work has concentrated on countries where there's been violence, civil war, um, really the extreme end of need for reconciliation. My mind has recently been concentrating on a country that is divided and much more divided than it's ever been. And I wonder just whether there are lessons to be learnt from what you've been doing to the country as it is now and as it will be um, in the events following the next few weeks or months. And I guess it's no surprise I'm talking about the UK. Thank you. Then maybe in the front row right here next. Good morning. 
thanks for the talk. My name is Arturo Montejo. I'm starting here at LSE Health Policy. Uh, I'm from Colombia. So, well, uh, my question is going to be related with the reconciliation in, in, and related with my country. So uh, my question is, how could, be, how could uh, the civil society be involved in art to understand the conflict and improve the reconciliation? The civil society, not only the artists, but how to involve us. So I'll answer those, and then we'll have another. Just two. Another answer. Yeah, that's it. Okay. So who? I'll, I'll, I'll do the. I'll do the big, big question. <laughs> so uh, well, incidentally, as we were developing this project, from almost day one, we thought, oh, actually, you know, we may be talking about the Balkans, but this is so relevant to what is happening uh, in this country. And uh, as a matter of fact, I think people find it uh, uh, almost shocking, you know, when you say, actually, there is something from uh, uh, the area of conflict studies that I can bring to the UK. And this is a very, I mean, I, I could, uh, this is a very fascinating uh, sort of thing for me uh, uh, to, uh, to observe, uh, especially... Um, as um, uh, it was very, it was very interesting because uh, since the vote, um, many people have made uh, comparisons with uh, with the former Yugoslavia and kind of this whole idea of uh, the separation or a divorce of a political union or kind of getting away from it. And uh, uh, but uh, uh, f f from my perspective. Um, it's this idea of, not the idea, rather the reality of a kind of almost um, uh, identity politics which is not kind of fettered or moderated or moderate uh, in any way which I found um, uh, quite uh, quite surprising in 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 this context, and um, that would call for reconciliation. But I will just say kind of how this project then and what we've done here would more concretely kind of fit in with this Brexit debate. And I could go about lots about emotions uh, and kind of Balkan comparisons if you like later on. Uh, but um, what we've looked at, the, the kind of framework that we used for this research from a political science perspective was the, was, uh, the framework of, uh, on deliberation. And actually, I'm writing a book currently on deliberation and reconciliation. So when we look, uh, when we think of deliberation in a kind of Habermasian terms, kind of where this idea of, of a political discussion uh, comes from, uh, deliberation is not just a debate, right? Uh, it's not just the voicing of kind of your opinions. Uh, deliberation is the kind of political debate uh, where you, uh, as a deliberator, will take on board the perspective of the person that you are discussing. So this is, this is the idea of you being to step out of your shoes and see the same situation uh, from the perspective of a person that you are uh, discussing with. And I think it is this idea, I think, I think it is this, this possibility of being able to look at the situation from another person's perspective uh, 
and uh, make a decision or a, or, or a conclusion which will not be selfish, which is which is which is crucial uh, for uh, some sort of um, uh, uh, reconciliation, whatever kind of it may mean in in, in the context it may be. And um, and as you as you know, uh, the debate is uh, being very polarized. Uh, uh, not just in the social media, but uh, you know, if you look, at the, if you listen to Newsnight or any other debates that you may li listen to, and um, uh, you know, you have this echo chamber effect that has been mentioned over and over again. And I think this would be the the the, the, the biggest uh, the, the biggest challenge uh, going forward and creating some sort of you know reconciliation across this. A pro and anti-Brexit, uh, uh, if you like, divide uh, in, in in the UK. Anyone uh, else that's going on that one? Not on that one. I, I can uh, go on the second question. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, so it, it's a fascinating and enlarged question. Uh, problematic in parts because, like I said, it's sort of hard to know what is reconciliation in any one context. So. Uh, if we're looking at the Colombian example, again, what would we, how do we define successful reconciliation there? It's a shame some of our colleagues from, from King's and the University of the Arts who worked on other parts of the project are not here because they actually looked at this uh, in great detail and speaking to artists, uh, to civil society organizations who uh, rejected reconciliation, didn't want to use that word. Uh, that word had taken on some very different meanings to them. Um, and I guess to, you, know, you asked, well, what can, we, what can civil society do? How can we help civil society? Some of their conclusions were along the lines of you know, removing these toolkit approaches to civil society, that they always need to do something very formulaic, but opening it up a bit more. And this will stop a bit of the gaming of the system that has happened. So these, uh, a lot of these civil society groups, they know how to get funding from international organizations by using buzzwords like reconciliation, which then very much changes what that means and what they're trying to achieve. Uh, and essentially then, you know, it's vilified and civil society groups are vilified as well because they're seen as only gaining funds from this and not actually doing relevant work that they want to be doing. So even if they want to be doing environmental work, they might call it reconciliation because they know the funding's attached to it. And if they wanted to be doing work on reconciliation, but they know the funding's going towards the environment, they might add the environment into their applications. So it's a changing the system, and our colleagues at King's were very much working on this and figuring out how can we better evaluate these projects, and then how can they have a better playing field to essentially uh, uh, operate in. Would anyone else like to come? Okay, so I'm going to take uh, a little bit of the bag, and then the one in my just in front. Vesna Popovsky, LSC. Nella, I have a question for you. Uh, I'm interested, has this been exhibited in the former Yugoslavia, any countries, your black box? Mm, not yet. Okay. There is and a conversation about it being taken to a museum of uh, history of Bosnia and Herzegovina because the work is part of, um, well, it's independent, but it's the first time it was exhibited, it was exhibited as part of the commissioned work uh, that was in the King's, uh, the Exchange Gallery. Yeah. So it was one of 20, maybe, works that were there. Uh, artists were commissioned to produce something on uh, the discourse of the reconciliation, and this was uh, my contribution to that. And then we were asked to 
take a few of those um, artworks to the Museum of History to Bosnia and Herzegovina, but it's, I don't know what's happening with that yet, so... No, why I'm asking this question is because I find it fascinating. Reconciliation is obviously an English word. Mm -hmm. And if it goes to the former Yugoslavia, we would have different words mm -hmm. and different letterings mm -hmm. because we would lose both Latin and Cyrillic. Mm -hmm. And I was just thinking, have you been thinking about that? How would you actually present it mm -hmm. in the former Yugoslavia? Because mm -hmm. especially with your idea and looking mm -hmm. and how people react mm -hmm. and what kind of words people would actually make mm -hmm. out of the letters both Latin and Cyrillic, mm -hmm. I think it would be fascinating to see approach in a different mm -hmm. way towards uh, what in English call reconciliation. Yeah. That has taken a, a large part of our thinking, um, and I'm saying uh, our, because even though the, the work is mine, uh, I always feel that uh, it has been a collaboration. Uh, the end point is mine, but actually it has been the collaboration. So when we started doing the lettering uh, and how the lettering came about, I actually have done what uh, uh, um, Denisa asked me to stop doing, which is uh, I have started, I, I attempted to read this war and peace that she was uh, <laughs> talking about. So, because I was thinking I'm working with the renowned scientists, I better kind of up my game. And, uh, and then I just realized how difficult this uh, 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 was, not in terms of its volume. For me, because I understood the language, the gruesome accounts that I came uh, across were overwhelming. And in that sense, dry, drove me to a direction that is very reactive and very responsive uh, to uh, the actual material, the content. So uh, removing me from research and getting me focused to something that I have seen as a kind of artwork, uh, war aesthetic. And it means that you're taking people's faces, uh, people are crying, veiled uh, women, children uh, uh, half dead. I mean, these kind of things, which are very much documentation work and very much present in the photography. Again, through the media, this is something that we have kind of accepted as the uh, visual language of, of these kind of things. And uh, I, I had to stop that, and I had to start thinking differently. So I came up with something that is even more silly, like a dress, because there, were, um, there was a line of research that was uh, examining gender at the start. And I thought, you know, a dress, and then I thought, oh my God, can I be any more stereotypical than this? And then, so it, I, I had a lot of thinking behind that. And when I realized that the words are repeating, some of the words are repeating, then they started appearing a little bit more as the most important part. Um, and then when I attended some of the sessions that they had, uh, uh, te text mining sessions, then I have realized that they are pretty much obsessed with these words. And that kind of obsession I can, I can use to make, to make the artwork with. Um, uh, another thing was the fact that they started, even in, in my head, being whispers. These words appeared as whispers. And I thought, okay, I'll just take them, see what I have. And then when they were written up, I realized, well, there's about 
50 words I can make out of the word reconciliation. And then if I start doing that, then I'm creating a puzzle. Oh, this is a crossword. So, so the form has been moving all the time with the process of working. And I realized that I, if I do reconciliation is the main word, then others can follow, and then I need to thread them, and this kind of... So this is how it came about. But then which words should, should I use? Because I, for reconciliation, I only have a dozen. So what happens? So how I make the choice of which ones are important, which are not? And then I started thinking, okay, how about using the knowledge of the language? And the first one is rat, which is the war in Serbian, and Bosnian, and Croatian. And... Uh, and rat in, in, in the language, uh, in the English language, has a different meaning, but it's a word, and maybe the right word for the rat. Uh, and in that kind of sense, I was thinking, okay, I have enough to play with, but it's not now owned by me. This, this dictionary is not owned by me, because if I can unlock the words, which is what I have done, and uh, I can then invite the audience to make up their own. So in that sense, I gave you a few to play with, but you do with them whatever you like. So in that sense, I'm hoping that if the work is exhibiting, exhibited elsewhere, people will react to it in the same way. Tom. Uh, yeah, just, just to add a couple of words to what Nala said. Um, I think it's about, it's about a trade-off, really, between making this work accessible here for the first two exhibitions at King's at LSE, uh, because originally, originally all of the texts were translated into Serbian, so it could like it would have been more uh, like more authentic in, in in terms of the research to actually use words in Serbian probably. And we initially uh, entertained this idea of actually calculating word frequencies and sort of like having the most frequent words that you can. Uh, construct, uh, construct reconcil like uh, not reconciliation, because reconciliation itself does not occur as much in 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 the text, in the transcripts of those uh, civil society uh, meetings that we were analyzing. So that would have been would have been other words. Uh, so it was really and also sort of speaking like going uh, back and forth, sort of uh, discussing various possibilities, using like Serbian or word frequencies or switching uh, altogether to English uh, and then using the words that do not necessarily occur frequently in the text, uh, but that epitomize uh, our research. So I think this, this is how it came to be reconciliation and words in English. Great. I'm going to take three now, because we've got quite a lot. So first, you. Hi. Uh, my name's Leah. I'm a student at LSE this year, doing my master's uh, in international development. And I think like the first thing that you said, Denisa, about the uh, entrenchment of ethnic narratives being kind of the further entrenchment of them being the paradox of reconciliation. And, you know, with all due respect to the seriousness of reconciling violent conflict. It's, it sort of is making me uh, reflect on my time at LSE having to reconcile between uh, different departments and different schools of thought that I'm being forced into uh, that kind of are going against my own um, intuition about how the world works in my own experience. Um, and so I think it's, I was just thinking about, you know, my department 
and then the Department of International Development and Human, what is it? The IDHE is human humanitarian emergencies, right? And so, just thinking about the fact that these are two that these are two different departments makes me see that we still haven't equated development with emergencies, the humanitarian kind. You know, natural disasters are sort of a different story. But to see that we're not, you know, in the courses that I'm taking, we're not unless I go and I say, you know, I want to study in that course, and we do, that's why we do have cross-disciplinary, you know, way of learning, but we're forced to make those connections ourselves and against what our professors who are very indoctrinated into their own departmental thinking um, are doing. So it's very, I, I think, and, and this, this is, it sort of speaks to that because you see two um, very, you know, perceivedly different uh, disciplines coming together to create a work like this that speaks much louder than either of the disciplines can speak uh, separately. So I am planning to do my dissertation about the role of the arts in development, but as you can imagine, I'm getting some pushback from our staff saying, you know, what does, what does the arts have to do with development? So just interested in anyone's thoughts on that topic. <laughs> Thank you. Now the man in the Yes, um, hello, I'm uh, Colin Becks. I'm um, a founder member of two um, political parties um, going back uh, to 1974, one of them, campaigning for restructuring, dismantling and restructuring the whole existing post-imperial structure of nation-state top-down diktat. Anyway, I won't labour the point. Um, we're talking here about... Um, anagrams and acronyms, I think, within black box mining, uh, one of which I can, uh, I'll spare you only one, um, uh, the, uh, the uh, name of the Ted Heath, who was the Prime Minister who shoehorned us into Europe in the first place after millennia of being free from it. Um, uh, his acronym is The Death. Um, anyway, I won't say any more on that. I, I really want to address the point of the greatest difficulty, in my view, in attempting to reconciliate people who have been subjected to crimes of such enormous <coughs> evil, and I'm not a religious person, um, and uh, people who, like Blair, are illegal war criminals. That's within the terms of the hierarchical structure of our <coughs> totally evil system of top-down diktat, which has to be replaced. Yes, well, the question is then, would you not agree that whatever you're doing in the work for reconciliation, the greatest value of which I believe can only take place three generations after the events that uh, the lady here was reading in War and Peace and couldn't take any more of. We are witnessing this daily as intelligent people and we are being strapped into uh, attempts to excuse major world criminals of our species. And if we don't stop that, there will be no change. Hello, Eric. Um, I'm a social entrepreneur, so my concern is a little bit practical. 
I I wonder how you you do to because I I suppose that you're going to do that to exhibit that in a museum, right? And the question would be more that, uh, for instance, as uh, the Guggenheim in New York City, they have make some try to exhibit some art in the daily routine of people, such as in a shop or in a deli. And I would like to know if it's something in your mind that you know to be able to reach out like people who are not used to go to museum to see that and to engage a conversation with them. So I don't know if you thought about that and what's your idea about that? I'm, I'm doing this all my, all my life. I'm, I'm, I'm the person who doesn't do events like this or has the stuff. I normally like work with people and I work in social centers, in prisons and places like this. Um, and sometimes it's really hard, uh, even for my students, uh, to actually take into account something that we call social design or uh, participatory arts because there is a drive for uh, I want to be uh, uh, unique and a genius and whatever, whatever. So, um, isolating themselves from the possibility of working together or working in the team and this kind of thing. And uh, for me, that's where the joy lies, so I would rather do that. But in the concept of this work, considering that it was um, AHRC-funded uh, uh, research and that the commissions were attached to it and that there was an output that needs to be an exhibition in a particular place, so this work had to have a contained kind of environment within which it will be exhibited. But from what I uh, saw in the Museum of uh, History of uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina, there are uh, a lot of people that are coming in in a much friendlier way than what you see tourists here uh, do in V&A or in, in Tate when the exhibitions are incredibly expensive, ticketed, and there is a rigor within which you approach the institution from the start. You need to plan your visit and this kind of thing. In the museum in Bosnia, it doesn't seem to be the case. So I'm relying on the culture that already exists um, uh, to uh, not alienate further uh, the people that might feel that they have nothing to do with arts. Uh, but if this work is to be exhibited in the shop, I don't mind. It's just that it's not part of the my own um, independent kind of thinking. This This is now part of the research that has its own... Um, uh, domain within which they want to exhibit the work. So maybe when it's that over, maybe I can just put it somewhere. But I would rather create a new thing with new people. So I'm not precious about this at all. Yeah. I don't know if this is an answer to your question. <laughs> yeah, well, it was much more about how you engage people who are not used. I mean, in such kind of things where, you know, like uh, reconciliation is mm. important also for people who are mm. not going to the museum mm. and that suffer too. And that's mm. the dialogue is important to engage with them too. So mm. the idea is much more like, uh, did, did you work about um, um, the way to reach out such kind of things, mm. such kind of people? Maybe it's an opportunity for another grant that we do just that. Activity. Activity. I can say Denise, you're going to say something? Okay, so, um, well, actually, I wanted to uh, address the, the other two questions, but I was just trying to whisper to Ivor, because his uh, part of the project was very interesting, and that was... Um, responding to this idea that uh, reconciliation is being uh, perceived as a dirty word and almost a dirty concept. You know, people almost understand uh, our colleagues uh, talk about this as Romeo Julietism. You know, in every conflict or post-conflict space, you have to find your Romeo and Juliets for different ethnic lines, and it's just everything seems so construed, and the, the whole concept of reconciliation is rejected. And... Um, 
uh, and again, you know, it's a challenge how to reframe it, and maybe Ivor can just talk about reconciliation as activity and maybe a bit on dating that you've done. Uh, yeah, I mean, yes. so the, the research that, that I undertook, and we um, organized a, a special issue around it as well, so we looked at essentially a variety of activities that uh, we deemed to be reconciliatory in some way, and, and we were being quite minimalistic here. Uh, and it was on the basis of that if there's some kind of contact uh, between individuals, it was contact theory, but even more stripped back for the post-conflict environment where there's often uh, stru structural segregation, it's actually very hard to meet with the other side. Uh, but there are certain activities that might lead to some kind of even symbolic contact, for example, with the symbols of the other group. Uh, for example, like gardening uh, or shopping, going to shopping centers together. And I looked at uh, inter-ethnic dating uh, in Bosnia and these huge obstacles, uh, like the segregation, uh, also, for example, the sort of religious norms attached to who you can marry, who you cannot marry, and so on, and then these couples that overcame these obstacles and how they did so. And a lot of that was taking part in civil society, actually. That was one of the big trends that we saw. And also, uh, in their day-to-day -day lives, uh, resisting uh, a lot of these pressures through various activities. So, for example, if they were going to have a wedding, they would have some kind of uh, mixed religious wedding with mixed symbols, or maybe even just totally rejecting the symbols of, of uh, religion in that region, which are very closely tied to these ethnic structures. Uh, so we definitely tried to kind of strip it back and remove this uh, normative load uh, on reconciliation, just focused on day-to-day -day activities that individuals took part in. Did you want to come in on the, how, how yes. she should write the introduction justifying her dissertation on yeah. <laughs> why it's good to very, study art? Uh, uh, yes, very, 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 actually very tricky questions and I, um, um, I, I really applaud the, the very kind of frank and uh, robust ways in which the, this whole idea of interdisciplinarity is being uh, discussed um, and uh, we as a project were part of those uh, discussions. So when somebody mentions interdisciplinarity, the whole idea is that you kind of have a clash of different perspectives and out of that, you know, almost seemingly incongruent clash, you come up with a very original perspective uh, and you look at things uh, differently. So, you know, interdisciplinarity is really kind of, you know, almost uh, kind of marketed, if you like, you know, as, as, a, as a, like a super original and innovative way of doing things. And yet, if um, you want to publish interdisciplinary work, it will be very difficult to find a home for an article or, or a book that is, uh, that is interdisciplinary. And everybody then has to kind of withdraw, you know, from this kind of exciting kind of, uh, you know, collaboration uh, into your own. Uh, discipline. Okay, so so that is the reality of kind of how the lay of the land at the moment, and uh, and as a matter of fact, as a part of this project, uh, we uh, were part of debates uh, and very important questions asked, uh, including uh, by research councils, uh, is interdisciplinarity used instrumentally? Okay, do people say, oh, I'm going to do this exciting interdisciplinary research? 
you know, maybe just to kind of capture grants, and then you then go off and do uh, whatever you wanted to do in the way you wanted to do. And I think that is a very important discussion. I think uh, what is also very interesting is that the practice, I, can, I could never imagine a collaboration uh, with Nella. Interesting conversation over coffee, yes, but for us to, to come and you know, bring sort of political science uh, approach to the study of politics and art together and and have a, and, and pre- have something created as a result of it that is, you know, that speaks to the realities of of, of, of post conflict. Uh, um, that would have not happened had it not been uh, for for a research project which had three legs of research: <coughs> us as political scientists, kings that did the histories, and uh, University of Arts that did. Uh, so I think there is a lot of thing to kind of do. Uh, at that kind of meta level, how you do uh, research. Great, thank you very much. I think we've got time for one more round of questions. Good question. Perhaps they're going to there. Then, then, uh, that's the final question. Hello, I'm Beatrice Brown, and I study law and wish we had more artists involved. You speak a lot about post-conflict and the role of the arts. I just wonder your thoughts on pre-conflict and the role of the arts and if there are those interesting problems you mentioned around granting and finance pre-conflict. What, what could artists be doing? What are they doing? And is it important to track that? Can we, Does anyone else have a... Yeah, man there. Was oh, that, that an arm at the... Is there another question there at the front as well? Hello, no, it's uh, Carl Finn from the V&A. I want to know what you think about when objects are remade uh, after lost in conflict, when they're recreated, copies made for future generations to enjoy, whether that is could be an essential part of the reconciliation process or is it perhaps opposed to it? When you're looking back, you can't go forward. Uh, any more questions? Or? Yeah. Lovely. Okay, so we'll have a couple of responses and then go and have a look at the art, I think. <laughs> so okay, so Nella? I can just, well, uh, yeah. Nella, um, I think um, when we do um, art and reconciliation, uh, you, there was just one way of looking at the, 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 the role of the arts in conflict. Uh, there is a lot of important work uh, that looks at uh, um, how art can be manipulated to cause conflict, uh, how all kinds of arts, from visual, uh, I mean, you can start, you know, if you look at the, you know, uh, from art, you know, music, film, um, uh, Etc. in all stages of the conflict. But it is interesting, uh, so basically uh, art is something that actually you know, promotes those, those exclusive uh, uh, narratives. Uh, art that is part of uh, warmongering. And uh, uh, in effect, uh, there is, uh, you know, even if you look at the area that, uh, that we study, Yes, that is a very complex uh, landscape uh, artistically out there. So, uh, but our 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 um, 
th this particular project sought to uh, to discover how can art create uh, that opening that would normatively align uh, with peace building and giving human dignity. So, yeah, I'll just stop there. But Nella has mm -hmm. any more? Well, let's say. take the, there is one final question, then I'll give the last word to Nella on the memorialisation and remaking question. Well, thank you for letting me speak. Um, I'm an outsider, I've come in late. Um, I'm Francis Joseph and I write plays. And the thing that struck me about art and conflict is that theatre, and this is a theatre, could perhaps prevent the conflict in the first place. Yes. Great, thank you. So, um, Nella, do you want to... Okay, um, it's very long, all, all of this, so I can speak for hours, so I have to... We have two minutes. Yeah, oh my God. Okay, so um, in the uh, socialist state that Yugoslavia was, for about 40 years, most of the arts was state-funded, and therefore there were people who were state artists. So in that kind of sense, you would expect that they would be asked to produce a particularly politically correct artworks if they need to communicate nationalism or whatever, and how would they approach that, what their ethical stance might be to the creation of such work. Are they going with the money? Are they going with um, uh, the uh, progress of their own careers? Are they going with what they believe in? So there's the plethora of questions in relation to that. Uh, Pre-conflict, post-conflict, and in any way, uh, simply because we are often asked to um, produce artwork that is to do mostly with our identities or with a particular cause, or you know, your artwork in order to be commissioned and exhibit in the first place needs to respond to curatorial policy, whatever that policy is. So in that kind of sense, it is very um, unexpected that the audience would come to the studio just because you produce the work on nothing in particular to see what it is that you're working on. It's always expected that the audience comes in when there is already a narrative of why your work is in the particular public space already. So that's, that's the reason um, uh, why you often get uh, the work that is framed in a particular way, because it does respond to something that already exists as a pre-narrative. Uh, um, and in terms of uh, memorialization and uh, um, re reverence of the objects, um, I think the question is what they are for in the first place, like when they are made, why are they made? So we can talk about the uh, questions of the archive as well in this kind of sense as well. So how archive figures in this? If you know that your work is going to go into the archive eventually, it wouldn't have the life that it necessarily has, like this work as well. If they bin it, maybe the, you know, maybe it's, it's not going to go into the archive, but maybe the pictures will. So I think it depends what it is for. Um, unless we are talking about precious objects, which is completely different narrative then. So I think that's a very complex question that you ask. But we can talk about this if you, if you like afterwards. And the last one is the theatre. Uh, I don't think the theatre can prevent the conflict, but it certainly is the art form that is absolutely engaging the community, and we have a proof of it in Sarajevo by the work Beckett's work that Susanna Zontag has, Susan Zontag has uh, uh, put uh, in an infamous uh, holiday in, uh, in the middle of the siege, which kind of brought um, the light to what is actually going on um, uh, in Europe, for Americans at least, where um, the story of this has been published. 
I have no idea what I was saying. <laughs> I did want to address the question uh, of interdisciplinarity um, to um, uh, uh, our student, master student there, uh, and uh, the question of temporality. You know, you said, you know, three generations after the event should, uh, you know, then go on about the business of reconciliation. And that's not how it works. One of the greatest minds who wrote about um, violence, just war crimes, uh, reconciliation, uh, Stanley Cohen, said that war crimes don't have a historical time. And as a matter of fact, as I mentioned at the very start, reconciliation almost becomes harder as the, as the time uh, goes on. If someone was killed or someone they suffered a loss uh, 10, 20 years ago, that pain is no less, uh, you know, with the passage of time. And this is, I think, a very important point, that these questions, then they cannot be put under the carpet because they creep out or on the back burner. And, uh, and these are very difficult questions uh, for, you know, in all contexts, whether it is under, after like uh, human rights uh, sort of uh, abuses, you know, in a political sort of type of uh, conflict, uh, uh, dictatorships, or uh, in the context of, uh, of ethnic conflicts, how does one proceed, right? How do you confront uh, justice? in a way that people don't perceive is that this is just injustice, right? Because that's what you can do as well by, uh, you know. So, uh, so I think that would be uh, my question. So I, I would question the way it is, it is framed. These questions cannot be, uh, the, the putting them off for generations is, is, uh, is not an answer. In fact, there is a very, uh, a very interesting uh, research on uh, traumatization of younger generations uh, who were not party to a, to a conflict just because the difficult questions uh, were not addressed. So, you know, the silence doesn't, doesn't protect anyone, nor does it have the help so social repair as well. So. Great, well that's a very rich answer. So thank you very much. All of the panelists are going to be outside. And all the other.